we're now going to turn to talk about the topic of gender. And I used to, when I did sessions like this, spend some time trying to convince people that gender was an important topic for us to talk about. I kind of increasingly think that's not necessary. <laughs> you don't have to look at the news long to see how prominent gender is as a question among, or a thing going on in our culture. In a sense, actually, it's much more a prominent thing in our culture because it is still an area of actual debate among people who aren't followers of Jesus. And there are very different ways, various ways we could approach this topic. It's controversial in part because it is so complex. And there are different kind of aspects of uh, the type of subject agenda that we could look at. The way we're going to tackle it, though, is to tackle one particular question, which I think is at the moment one of, if not the most prominent question about gender in our culture, and that I think helps us get something of a Christian framework to engage in various areas of this conversation. And that question is, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? That's one of the questions that in our culture we are wrestling with. There are politicians who are being asked in interviews, what does it mean to be a woman? And they seem unable to define that. And so actually she's become a contested matter in our culture. But actually it's not just a kind of, you know, a big picture cultural question. It's also a real life individual question and personal experience for lots of us, whether in our own lives or those of people around us. There are a few different ways in which the question of what does it mean to be a man or woman can hit home for us in real life. For some people, that's in their experience of a significant disconnect between kind of what others seem to think about who they are and who their body might seem to say they are and how they feel themselves to be inside. This is what we might describe as transgender experience or the experience of gender dysphoria, which is the diagnosis given when there's distress because of that sense of disconnect. That someone might have a a male body, say, but feel themselves internally to be a woman. There's a disconnect which often can cause a lot of distress as well. For some people, that's where this question really hits home. For other people, it's not quite a disconnect, but it's more of a kind of a a discomfort, just a a more low-level discomfort, a sense of not quite being a real man or real woman, or not quite making the cut, not quite fitting in as a man or a woman. So not a sense of being in the wrong body, maybe, but a sense of just not quite being comfortable with their identity as a man or woman. And then we as Christians, I think, have discipleship questions around this kind of question. What does it mean to faithfully live as a man or a woman? In what ways, if any, should we live differently as men or women as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus? And my kind of observation is the experience of disconnect is fairly rare, although it can be very real and very life-impacting for people. The experience of discomfort seems to be quite common. Actually, increasingly, as I travel around and talk about this quite a lot, so many people seem to resonate with that sense of not always feeling that they quite fit in as a man or woman or not kind of quite mating the cup in that way. And for me, personally, two of these have been particularly big for me. There was a time in my childhood when I experienced something of that disconnect, a time when I came to believe I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it so vividly because I remember the fear that I'd get pregnant, you know, not, not knowing how these things work, and that my big secret would be found out. And I kind of decided I'd just have to kind of never leave home, never let anyone find out this big secret. And actually, as I grew up into my teenage years, that feeling went away with its own accord, But I was still left with that sense of discomfort, never really feeling I qualified as a real man, never really feeling I fitted into the box of what it means to be a man. I felt kind of really uncomfortable in kind of all-male environments and would basically tend to avoid them. I would say things, I look back now and realise, like I'd be talking to a female friend and I'd say, well, he would say that because he's a man. Which is clearly saying the men are over there and I'm not thinking I'm a woman, but I'm clearly not in that group. 
And it's in various ways, which is very self-conscious about myself in ways I thought kind of disqualified me from being a real man. It's been a really big question for me, but what I've found is that there's wonderful freedom to be received when we understand what the Bible says about what it means to be a man or woman. That again, where culture thinks or assumes that Christianity has a, a bad news, oppressive message on this topic, actually we have wonderful good news, wonderful freeing news that I think so many people in our society are longing for, and that's what I'm going to try and unpack for us a bit. So let's start off by saying, going to the scriptures and asking the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? The place I think to start here is right at the very start in Genesis 1, the big picture account of creation on the sixth day where God creates humans. And where we find a couple of really important things about humans uh, in verses 26 through to 28. Let me just read them out to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The central verse there, verse 27, two things that we're told about humans and two things that are placed in parallel. That we're created in God's image and we're created male and female. First of all, we're created in image, God's image. There's something special and unique about us as humans. This is presumably one of the most important things about us. It's pretty much the first thing we're told about humans. Before we're told any difference between men and women, we're told that every single one of us is created in God's image and that's vitally important. And as you look through scripture, what that seems to mean is there's a family resemblance between us and God. A few chapters later, in Genesis 5, Adam will have a son called Seth, and Seth is said to be in the likeness and image of Adam. It's that kind of thing we understand of like father, like son, where the image of God is saying the same kind of thing. There's an unspecified family resemblance, a similarity between us and God. And then the way the image is kind of spoken of and applied in the scriptures shows that the image of God, the fact we're created in his image, gives every single human life inherent worth and inherent value. We have a a right to respect, a a right to being recognized as having that value, that worth, and that our life is precious. It's worthy of preservation and worthy of protection. You see this in something like Genesis 9. And the fact that every single living human being is created in God's image is the reason why murder is treated so very seriously. You see it in James 3, where the fact that we are in the likeness of God is the reason we shouldn't even speak against, we shouldn't curse other people, kind of speak violence against them, as it were, because we're created in the image of God. The image gives us inherent worth and dignity and is the basis for equality. The reason all humans are equal is because every single one of us is equally created in God's image. And so it's just important to notice that before anything about difference is said between men and women, equality actually is the thing that is first noted and the foundation for equality is given. And just notice also the image is a given identity. This isn't that you have to act in a certain way to become in the image of God or feel a certain thing to be in the image of God. This is you are in the image of God because this is how God has created you and what he says. It's a given identity. That's the first thing we see in verse 27. And then we also see, placed in parallel to that, that we're created male and female. This is also presumably important because it's brought up kind of fairly early. 
Interestingly, this is only said here of humans, even though it's not unique to humans. And the author knows that. Look a few chapters onwards in uh, chapter 6, the flood narrative. The author of Genesis knows that most animals are male or female. He doesn't feel the need to say that in Genesis 1, but he does highlight it about us as humans. He seems to see it as a significant thing about us. He wants to kind of stress that point. And notice that it's placed in parallel with the image of God. In the image of God, he made them man or female, he made them. These kind of things are placed in parallel. I think one of the reasons for that is we're being told that to be male or female is also a given identity. Like the image of God is given to us by God in creation, being male or female is a given identity. You don't act a certain way to become male or female or feel a certain way to become male or female. It's a given identity received from God. Nothing can change it because it's based on what God says, based on what he, how he has created us. The question becomes, well, in what way does that identity get given to us? In what way do we receive the identity as a man or a woman? And here, perhaps unsurprisingly, both the Bible and science point in the same direction. Both of them point to the fact that where do we receive this identity? We receive it through the bodies God is giving us, and specifically through the ways that our bodies are structured to play one of two roles in reproduction. Reproduction takes two, there's two roles to be played in it, and bodies are structured to play one of those two roles. I think this is what the Bible is saying, male and female, about. Because did you notice, we read three verses there. In verse 26, humans are given that commission to have dominion and rule and subdue over all the created things. And the verse 27, you get um, about the image of God and man, if he, he created them. And verse 28, you again get that thing about ruling and subduing from verse 26. But added in before that this time is the command to be fruitful and to multiply. That wasn't there in verse 26, but the command to be fruitful and multiply is there in verse 28. What's changed in between the two? Well, male and female has been introduced. Male and female, he made them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. The command to be fruitful and multiply flows immediately from the creation of male and female, because what does it mean to be male or female? It means to have a body that's structured to play a role in reproduction. I think Genesis 1 is pointing us to the idea that our identity as male or female is given to us in the body that God has actually given to us. And that then is just backed up by science. The only truly binary way of categorizing humans, as in the only truly way of finding two types of humans, is to look at the structuring of the reproductive system. And that's why biologists in humans and across the species use the structuring of reproductive systems to isolate males and females. What the Bible is saying is actually lining up with the kind of conclusions of science and the way that biologists think about these things. So this identity is given to us and given to us or communicated to us in our bodies. But there might be a couple of kind of questions that raises for us, some kind of but what abouts, as I call them here. But what about this? But what about that? Because you might be thinking, well, that's okay, but what about those who don't have children, who are unable to have children? If actually this is about the structuring of our bodies for reproduction, does that mean some people don't qualify as a man or woman because they don't have children or they're biologically unable to father or mother children? And the important thing to say here is this isn't, uh, isn't about actually having children. This is about the general structuring of our bodies to play one of two roles in reproduction. Whether or not we end up playing that role in reproduction and whether or not our body is able to contribute to the production of a child in that way isn't the issue. It's about the shape and pattern of the bodies that God has given us. But the other, but what about people might say is you might be aware of what are sometimes called intersex conditions or differences of sexual development. And people say, but, but what about those? How does that fit in here? 
And what that is, is incest conditions or DSDs, it's a term referring to a large number of different types of um, conditions in which someone's physical body doesn't line up with the expected pattern for either male or female. And there's a huge range of different forms of intersex conditions, DSDs. In the vast majority of cases, there's a small level of variation from the normal male-female pattern, but a person is very clearly male or female and identifies as male or female, and is very clear on that. There are a very small number of conditions and an incredibly rare number of occurrences of those where there is genuine ambiguity over biological sex. So actually, someone's body genuinely reflects um, aspects of both a male body and a female body. And I think, though, we're best understanding that not as a third sex, but actually as a genuine blending of male and female in one body. Because actually, if what we're talking here about is how bodies are structured for reproduction, there's no third role you can play in reproduction. There's no third way someone can play a role in producing a baby. There's a male body part and a female body role. There's no third role, so there's no third sex. But in some very rare cases, people's bodies do exhibit characteristics of both of those sexes. What that means is this doesn't deny the fact that we're created by God, male and female. It doesn't deny the fact that this identity is given to us in our bodies. Just saying a very small, very rare occurring cases, there is some complexity around that and a blending of the two. So I think we can conclude that the Bible, supported as it happens by science, says that to be a man or woman, to be male or female, is to be given this identity through the body that God has given us. Just as we're in the image of God because God has created us that way, spoken that over us, so we are male or female because God's created that way and spoken over us, given that identity to us. And as I'm saying that, you can probably quickly begin to hear how sharply that contrasts with one of the prominent views in our culture. Because we live in a culture which actually is fairly negative about the body, sees our human bodies and physical bodies as just pretty insignificant in lots of areas of life and ethics, actually. And actually, when it comes to this topic, many people in our culture think actually it's not your body that matters, it's what's inside that matters. What really matters is kind of how you feel yourself to be, um, how you conceive of yourself and how you're going to choose to identify. And so many people in our culture would say, well, to be a woman is to feel like a woman. Or to be a man is to identify like a man, regardless of what one's body says. And what's happening there sometimes or often is a separation of two things. A separation of our bodies, of biological sex, and that kind of structuring of the body, from our internal self, and what people would call gender identity. And there's this idea, you've got a body, but you've also got this gender identity that kind of dwells within, and that reveals the real you. That's who you really are. And so if you feel like a woman, even though you've got a male body, you really are a woman. Or feel like a man, even though you've got a female body, you really are a man. And for many people in our culture, that is how they would answer the question, what's it mean to be a man or woman? The body isn't important. What matters is actually what you feel inside. But even before you open the Bible and ask, how does that match up with that? There are some fairly significant problems with that. If, for example, to be a woman is to feel like a woman, what does it mean to feel like a woman? Who could know? Who could articulate what it means to feel like a woman? And actually the whole definition of, for example, to be a man is to feel like a man, just doesn't work because you can't use a word to define a word. You can't use a word in the definition of that word. To say a man is someone who feels like a man is to say a man is someone who feels like someone, it's someone who feels like someone, it's someone who feels like someone, and you get stuck in an infinite loop. 
is literally a statement that is contentless. There is no meaning to the statement, a man is someone who feels like a man. It just communicates nothing. And that's why we're seeing, as people want to redefine women as someone who feels like a woman, women's rights crumble. Because if you can't actually concretely define what a woman is, you can't defend the rights of women. This is why we're tearing ourselves apart as a society over this, because we're trying to base some important things on a literally meaningless statement. And so the idea of our culture, as common as it is, just doesn't work on simple logical grounds and therefore isn't going to be good for us as a society or as individuals and certainly clashes with society, with um, biblical teaching, where the body is a good thing, a gift from God, and our identity as a man or a woman is given to us through that body. What does it mean to be a man or woman is a really key question and one we need to recognise what the Bible says and recognise just actually logic tells us, basically. But if we're honest, I think that's not the key question we often have. I think often there's another question we care about a bit more, which isn't what does it mean to be a man or woman, but what does it mean to live as a man or woman? Really, our concern falls with, okay, how do we live and how should we all live out the identity that we've received? We care about the kind of practical thing. And actually, on that one, Genesis 1 doesn't have a lot to say. I think it lays a foundation for us, but it doesn't actually have a lot to say about the kind of outworkings of being a man or woman. So we've got to look a bit further into Scripture. And as far as I can see, as I've wrestled with this, thought about this for many years now, I can only see two areas in Scripture, or two kind of parameters in Scripture, for how men and women are meant to live differently by virtue of being a man or woman. I'll try to summarise them briefly to you. I think Scripture does say that we're to... Um, present in our external appearance our identity as being either a man or a woman. That is received through our body, and then we're then to, meant to present that to the world, in a sense, in how we uh, present ourselves. It should be observable to others, and we're not to seek to, as it were, deceive people into thinking we're of the opposite sex, the one that actually God has created us to be. Biblically, I think that idea would lie behind the prohibition on cross-dressing in Deuteronomy 22.5, I think it also lies behind the very complex passage in 1 Corinthians 11 on head coverings, which is a complex and contested passage. But the one thing pretty much all scholars agree on is one of the principles Paul is putting forward is there are, there's a distinction between male and female which should be maintained in external appearance. That's kind of the agreed point, even among lots of contested things in there. And if we're honest, this idea of actually our identity as a man or woman being visible externally is something our bodies give us a head start on, right? Breasts and beards and such like, they're gifts from God which help differentiate males and females in visible ways. And then we're to kind of continue that expression through how we dress, how we style our hair, whatever it might be, in ways which the context in which we live will understand the fact that we are a man or a woman. So I think one parameter of how we live differently as men and women is actually we're to present that externally in ways, I say, that our culture will be able to understand that. And then the second thing is, I do think, I know different churches have different views here, but I do think there are different roles in marriage relationships and in church leadership for men and women, which isn't about different levels of ability or anything like that. It's about portraying a story that God is telling through that and a structure that God has put in. So 1 Timothy would be key there for several points there. Ephesians 5, what he talked about, would be key there for that in marriage. It's not about value or worth or ability. Remember that image of God is true of men and women before anything else comes in. But it is about how God has structured things, part of telling a bigger story, outworking of his plan. But beyond these two things, I can't see anything in Scripture that says there are ways that men and women need to live differently by virtue of being men and women. 
You'll find occasionally there are some other kind of sexed instructions as in given to men or given to women. But when you then look at those and think about those, they're things which are very clearly elsewhere in Scripture true for all of us. It just happens that in that context it was being directed to men and women. Maybe that means the author of that, that letter knew something was happening in that context and so they're addressing it specifically into that context, that time and place. But they're not saying this is true only of men or only of women. They're still true for all. And if that's the case, there's a lot of freedom. There's two small parameters for us to live out as men and women. But actually beyond that, there's an awful lot of freedom, much more freedom than we often think. And this is where I think it's rooted in Genesis 1.27. It makes sense that if we're a man or woman because God's given us that identity in our body, then we've got wonderful freedom actually in how we express our unique God-given personality and preferences. Expressing those kind of things doesn't change who we are. We don't need to fit into a narrow box of what men are like or what women are like to be a man or a woman. We receive the identity from God. From God. We know we are a man or woman, and that gives us the freedom to live out all the different things about us. So sometimes summarising it, knowing who we are allows us to be how we are. Knowing who we are as a man or woman given to us by God as an identity allows us to be how we are in our own expression of that. And that's where, for me, this is being so significant in my life. I shared with you that even when I'd grown out of that sense of uh, being a girl attracting a boy's body, I had this lingering sense of not fitting in as a man, not being comfortable as a man, not making the cut as a man. But actually, I found wonderful freedom when I realized, no, no, I'm a man because God says I'm a man. Genesis 127 means because God has created me in this way, with this body, I'm a man, and no way I act or don't act changes that. That gives me freedom to be how I am. Knowing who I am as a man gives me freedom to be how I am. And so I'm free to embrace my deep love of Downton Abbey and of musical theatre and my sometimes somewhat flamboyant nature. It doesn't change that. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. It doesn't matter that I'm not interested in sport or beer or steak. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. It's wonderfully freeing. So many people, actually, in my experience, our culture need to hear that and want to hear that. There's really good news here. The assumption is the Bible is full of these restrictive things for men and women. And actually the truth is, no, it's the most free message in the world. You are a man or woman because God says you are. So just be relaxed about how you are. And that nicely links us actually to gender stereotypes. Gender stereotypes are those very kind of fixed, simplistic ideas about what it means to be a man or woman or what men and women are like at least. And it's very easy to say, oh, gender stereotypes are terrible and should be discarded and, and done away with. It used to be kind of where I was on this, but actually I've come to the place to realise actually I think better than discarding gender stereotypes is to recognise the importance of keeping them in their place. The reality is most gender stereotypes exist because they do represent a statistical majority. They do describe a majority of men or a majority of women. And we stereotype all manner of things all the time and make generalisations and that's just a way that our limited human brains process a very complex world. But stereotypes become unhelpful if we don't keep them in their place and if we don't realise what they are and how they should and shouldn't function. So there are two helpful things that I think can help us to keep stereotypes in their place. One thing is to recognise stereotypes are often true, but they're not always true. They are generalisations, they're not universals. So they often are describing what is the majority experience or the majority um, uh, feature or personality characteristics, say, of men or women, but they're never going to describe everyone. And we need to make sure we don't take what's generally true and imply that it's always true. 
Because if we do, it leaves those of us for whom it's not true thinking, well, then maybe I don't fit into that box. Maybe I'm not a man. If we think this is always true of men and I don't feel I fit with that, it causes the question. It sows the seed of doubt of then maybe I'm not a man. We need to keep the fact that these are often true, not always true. Generalizations, not universals. And another way we keep stereotypes in their place is we recognize they're descriptive, they're not prescriptive. They're observations, they're not guidelines. They're observations of often this is how things are in the world around us. They're not guidelines of this is how it has to be. And again, you can see how if we get that wrong, problems emerge. If actually observation becomes a guideline, then actually some of us feel we get squeezed into this box that actually doesn't really come very naturally to us, and it feels this pressure thing to live up to this expectation of what it's like to be a man or a woman, because we're making a guideline of actually what really is just an observation. Stereotypes need to be handled carefully and kept in their place, which means like watching our words, watching our jokes, it's often a place that these come in. Um, events we run as churches can be an interesting place these come in. Parenting, I think, is really important. We're careful not to inadvertently affirm unhelpful stereotypes or to have stereotypes in their wrong place in our parenting or our uh, caring of children. And basically just making sure we're not making stereotypes be the base or basis of being a man or a woman. Because actually there's wonderful freedom for us to all experience when we realise that stereotypes aren't what make us a man or woman. And that's the interesting place where we as Christians have, I think, a much more life-giving and free message than our culture. See, what's happening in our culture is we're actually reaffirming quite historic uh, stereotypes about what it means to be a man or woman. Because when someone says, oh, I've got a male body, but I feel like a woman, what's it mean to feel like a woman? There's basically not much it can mean other than stereotypes, other than that I fit into these stereotypes. And when kids are told at school, actually, you might be a boy or a girl, actually, if you like these things, that might imply, actually, maybe you're a girl, not a boy. We're just reinforcing stereotypes. There was a, a, a documentary about trans, t- uh, trans kids, and there was a dad who said, I knew my son was a girl when I saw him run. What? It's diagnosis through stereotypes. And so what's happening in our culture is our culture claims that kind of ideas of gender are, are throwing off the oppressive shackles of old ways of thinking of things and let people be who they really are. Actually, our culture is saying, this is what a man is like. This is what a woman is like. If you don't fit in the box, you might be in the other box. You might be somewhere in between. Our culture is reinforcing the oppressive stereotypes of past generations. We as Christians have the good news of your identity as a man or woman isn't rooted in fitting into a box. It's rooted in the gift that God has given you in his body. Again, we can be the front foot. We've got good news, freeing news to bring to people. So I'm going to give you, therefore, a few minutes to discuss where do you see gender stereotypes at play in the culture around us or in church life or church culture? And how can we be proactive in keeping them in their place? You might want to think about that in the context of church or in the context of parenting or just the context of wherever it is you find yourselves day to day. How do we keep stereotypes in their place? We'll do just under 10 minutes on that and a few practical bits before Q&A. Let's try and uh, kind of pull some threads together from what we said. Again, a lot of that is quite theoretical in a sense. Let's just see how this might all apply to those three different types of experiences we talked about at the beginning. That experience of disconnect, a small number of people might experience, that experience of discomfort that a large number might experience, and then our questions around discipleship. How does everything we've said today about what it means to be a man or woman and to live as a man or woman uh, relate to or help us think about People who experience that disconnect, who might identify as trans, might experience gender dysphoria. 
I think we can say this provides part of, although only part of, a Christian response to an understanding of that kind of experience. It provides us with some help on how we might think about and understand the experience. Because in a sense, the key question for a person experience trans, trans experience, so a person who feels that their internal self doesn't line up with what their body might seem to say about who they are, the key question there really is, who am I? when my body and my internal self uh, disagree. When you kind of boil it down, that really is the fundamental question. Who is the real me when my body and my internal feelings disagree? And I think what Scripture would point us to is that actually our true self is revealed by our bodies. We are not people who have bodies. We are people who are bodies. Our bodies are a key part of our true self, gifts from God to us, which communicate something of that element of our identity to us. Our body reveals who we really are. And so there's a disconnect between what our bodies say and our internal selves say. It's our bodies which reveal, in a sense, the truth that God has given to us. Um, It reveals that to us. That is why I think that transitioning, that thing of moving to living line of internal gender rather than biological sex, I think we can say that is neither the best nor the right response to trans experience on a Christian, scripturally guided understanding. That bit is what I sometimes call a head response to trans experience, how we kind of think and process and understand the experience. But I'm also convinced a head response is not a sufficient Christian response to the reality of transgender experience. We also need to say, and we also need to have a heart response. We also need to be the people and the kind of communities who are expressing genuine love and welcome to people, who are seeking to really uh, understand people's experiences, which may be radically different from our own experiences we struggle to understand, but people who are putting the effort to get to know people, to understand and, and listen well to experiences. We need to be people in communities who express genuine compassion for those who are suffering the pain, which can be very real and debilitating pain of gender dysphoria. And in doing that, all we're doing, of course, is following the example of Jesus. What does Jesus do when he comes up against people who are distressed or people who are suffering? He responds with compassion. In fact, the scriptures tell us several times he's moved with compassion. There's this sense of Jesus has this innate, deep-rooted reaction of compassion when he encounters distress and he encounters suffering. We as followers want to seek to cultivate the same. And this is an area where Christians have often fallen short. Even in recent years, I've heard or I've spoken to trans people who even in recent years have had terrible experiences in well-respected churches in the UK We've not done well at having a good heart response to trans people. If we want to be like Jesus and reflect Jesus to people, we need to get better at that. One of the things there is, because there is such cultural debate, we often think of this just as a debate, not as a reality affecting real people. And one of the things for us all to remember, always remember is there is an important conversation being had in society that needs to be had. But we mustn't, through that, forget the reality that there are real people with real experiences, real pain in this. And what's it look like to have hearts that are responding rightly to them? A heart response is needed alongside our head response. But also I think we need a final step of a hope response. You see, getting the head response right doesn't solve everything. For someone who's got quite significant gender dysphoria, just understanding the kind of theoretical stuff we've talked about today or, or just thinking about gender stereotypes isn't necessarily going to make everything okay and take that distressing experience away. And so we want to ask actually, what's the hope that we can bring people walking with gender dysphoria And that's why I think we are wonderfully equipped to help and to love people well. Because actually, if gender dysphoria isn't about identity, this isn't a revelation of who we really are, but it is a very real and genuine experience of suffering, 
we as God's people are very well equipped to help people navigate that. Because of course the scriptures don't say a lot about where suffering comes from, but do say a lot about how we might navigate suffering and help others to do so. And actually the kind of resources that scripture gives us, resources like lament, the importance of being able to be honest about and express in relationship with others, and especially to God, the depth of our, our pain and our sorrow and our distress is incredibly powerful. Things like the Bible's big story that helps us understand there are some things which are so painful and some things which feel so natural that yet aren't God's plan that God's designed for us because of the way sin has impacted the world, but also that point us down the timeline to the fact that our present sufferings will seem light and momentary in the light of eternity, and that all of us need to get better at having an, an eternal view and how that helps us to navigate suffering and just the reality of how important human community and friendship is in handling suffering probably all of us will know from different times and experiences in our life how just having good friends alongside us who often can't solve a problem but in the midst of it are there alongside us loving us listening to us praying for us how that is such a powerful thing as we seek to navigate suffering And so I think a hope response is also really vital as we take hold of and seek to uh, love people well in and kind of um, equip people with biblical understandings of how do we handle suffering is really key. If you want to look into that more detail, a couple of years ago I published a little booklet called People Not Pronouns, Reflections on Transgender Experience, where I expand that kind of idea of a head response, a hope response, a heart response. So People Not Pronouns is the place to kind of unpack that a little bit more. That's how this might all apply to someone experiencing that, uh, that significant disconnect of trans experience or genders for you. What about discomfort? What about feeling we don't make the cut as a man or when we don't quite fit in? Well, I guess actually this one I've kind of already talked about quite a bit. I think there's just wonderful freedom to be received, to, to understand that thing of this given identity. We are a man or we are a woman because God's given that to us. And just actually to step into enjoying that freedom. The things we like or dislike, our personality and preferences, don't change that, don't challenge that. And that's good news for us. And I think it's so important that all of us actually step into embracing how we are, in a sense, knowing who we are. And most people, in my experience, in fact, I'm barely ever yet really to meet someone who doesn't have at least an area in which they think they don't match up to the stereotypes of being a man or being a woman. And actually, if we were all really good at growing into the confidence of I know who I am, there I, there I can be how I am. That would be so powerful. In a sense, if we lead by example in that. Because as we are comfortable about the ways that we might be gender non-conforming, other people feel it too. I always think at this point, there was a, a guy in my church who one Sunday morning thanked me for showing his two sons a different way of being a man, which is a really lovely idea. His sense of actually, you don't feel the need to fit into this box of being a man, and my sons are seeing they don't need to fit into that box to be a real man. What was so funny is he said this to me the morning after I'd been with these lads at an 18th birthday party. I thought, what did I do at that party? Those boys went home and told their dad that he then makes this comment about showing a different way of being a man. But I love the sentiment. I think it's so true. One of the most powerful things we can do, actually, is just to get comfortable with how we are, our uniqueness, and lead by example in that. And then finally, what about the discipleship questions? How do we honour God by living out our identity as a man or a woman? There are those two parameters I talked about, and I think they're important, that we are called to externally present our biological sex in that sense, and therefore not to cause people to think we are of the other biological sex. And I do think there are different roles in marriage relationships and church leadership structures. But beyond that, there's just wonderful freedom to be how we are. And actually, the thing I kind of want to make the point I was going to make at this stage is to recognize it seems to me that the focus of the New Testament 
is on a call to be Christ-like, not a call to be a biblical man or a biblical woman. And in some church circles over a number of decades, there's been the whole kind of thing of the biblical manhood and womanhood movement. And I think that's been highly problematic. I think that has basically made stereotypes into kind of guidelines and expectations. I think it's taking cultural stereotypes, not biblical teaching. But the main problem actually I have with the kind of classic biblical manhood and womanhood movement that's been prominent over the last few decades is the fact that it seems to make the idea of fitting into the box of being a biblical man or a biblical woman the most important thing about Christian faithfulness. And I read the New Testament, I just think, I just don't see that. But I do see that being like Christ, growing to become like Christ, being conformed to the image of God's Son is what we're called to. And so I almost kind of always want to leave us in the thing of, we want to take this seriously and we want to wrestle with this question and leave out what God is saying. But actually, let's not let concerns about trying to be a man or woman over shadow the fact what we call to ultimately is Christ-likeness. That's our goal, that's our desire, that's what God calls us to for his glory and our good, and that's what we're to call each other to as well. Let's invite Gab up, we can unpick this a bit in some Q&A. Thanks everyone again for your questions, there was lots again on this subject, we don't have time for all of them, but we'll do a few. So first one says, how should we respond to figures like J.K. Rowling? Uh, though she's right in theory... Is it fair to say she's wrong in approach? <laughs> I'll confess I haven't done well at keeping up with the story and always reading exactly what she's put out. I, her general approach, so I haven't therefore seen the tone and stuff in which she's doing it, so I can't quite come that. Her general approach, I think, is the right one. In the sense of what she's saying is that actually a first priority needs to be thinking about societal level impact and particularly the impact of some of the stuff we're doing is saying on the vulnerable and on women. So her big thing is about safeguarding single-sex spaces, especially for some of the most vulnerable women in society. And actually that should be a concern that we are fighting for as Christians. Looking out for the vulnerable is one of the things we are most strongly called to in Scripture by God. And then actually her next priority, she's very clear that she's very happy for trans people to live the life they want within the premises of actually having things to protect the vulnerable. And I would have disagreements on J.K. Rowling about the ethics around that, and certainly for a follower of Jesus, if that's right. But her kind of two-stage thing of we need to prioritise building a society where all people are protected and particularly vulnerable protected. And then after that, our next priority is how do we best love trans people? And she and I would have different ideas on how we best love trans people. But that journey, that process of where is the right one, I think. I, yeah, I haven't actually for a long time engaged with the actual stuff she said to see the tone and stuff in which she's done it. And that obviously is also really important. But from my memory of what I did see, I think she's actually done it quite well. And I do feel challenged that, you know, it's challenging that it is mainly non-Christian secular feminists who are standing up for the rights of the vulnerable when it comes to this topic and not Christians. And that might be a challenge we need to receive. Really good. This one's a bit more practical um, for churches. Uh, if someone who has medically transitioned gender comes to faith... Should we lead them back to living as their birth gender despite surgery? Mm, great, yeah. A bit like the question earlier was about what about a gay couple who comes to faith? And again, the general point of the thing of all of us are going to have loads of things to work out what does faithfulness now look like. I do think that faithfulness to Jesus, as I've tried to articulate this morning, means living out our biological sex. And so I do think that for someone who has transitioned, choosing to live again and present again, I'll say some more on that in a moment, in their biological sex is the right thing, both for our flourishing and also faithfulness to Jesus. Two things to say. One is I don't think that needs to be or will be a quick process. My observation is we, in all areas of life, expect 
faithfulness to Jesus and growing your holiness, sanctification to be kind of instant, quick fix stuff. And we're not very good at recognizing the reality that things take time and a process and journey. And even, I have a little bugbear around, we talk a lot around, we apply the language of freedom to things like this, which implies quite a quick, you know, click your fingers and it's done kind of thing. I think in scripture, freedom is applied to justification, forgiveness, coming into salvation. It's not applied to sanctification, becoming like Jesus. It's not that you click your fingers and suddenly lots of ways you become like Jesus. The language of, of sanctification is kind of walking it out, putting it on. It's all gradual, it's all progressive kind of things. We've just got to get better, I think, at realizing we're forgiving and accepted by God, which gives us the foundation from which to journey through the difficult things of what's this now mean for me. And sometimes that takes time, and that's okay. So I'd want to say that. And then I want to say it gets very complicated with medical transition. A, that medical professionals should be involved, because certainly if someone's on hormones, say you can't just suddenly stop taking hormones because of the way your body's going to react. So you'll be working with medical professionals to see, is it possible and wise to stop taking um, the hormones once we take them? Surgery, I think, is a different matter as well. Surgery is a one-time choice, which has ongoing impacts. It's not a choice day after day to live out of kilter with one's biological sex as taking hormones, say, could be, because you have to take those regularly. And so someone might choose, actually, they want to have further surgery to bring their body closer into line of how it was, or they might decide, actually, these are, in a sense, the scars of decisions I have made. They are not me daily choosing to go against God's plan, and therefore, actually, I'm going to live with that. And all of us live with scars, and that's the wonderful thing of grace. Grace actually frees us from the guilt of things we've done or whatever, but we still live with some of the scars both literal and metaphorical for that and so i think for someone who's had surgical intervention actually it's then in their choice of how they choose to respond to that after coming to christ yeah really good um next one it's it's sort of linked um should we respect a trans person's chosen name and pronoun um say a family member or someone in church or outside of church at work for example In general, I see this as what theologians would call a disputable matter. Scripture doesn't speak about it explicitly at all, obviously. I think it's not clear-cut. I think a good case can be made on either side. So it's not something I tend to want to give an answer to because I think actually disputable matters are ones which we, in our conscience before God, have to reach our own decisions. And then actually, Paul and Romans would say, we reach our conclusions and then we work to be united even we have different conclusions. Some principles to, to, to bear in mind... I personally don't buy the thing of using someone's preferred pronouns as lying. I just think, actually, if I'm using a male-bodied person who wants to be known as she and her, in using those words, all I'm doing is I'm saying, I'm addressing you the way you want to be addressed and you're going to respond to. I'm not saying, I think you are of the female sex. So I, don't, I personally don't buy the thing that it's a lie to use that language, which, for a lot of Christians, is one of the, the kind of barriers. Um, and I think, actually, if someone's not a Christian, my priority wants to be, I want to maintain relationship to you with you to introduce you to Jesus. Because how you're living, to an extent, doesn't matter until you're following Jesus. Jesus doesn't expect you to sort yourself out so you can come to him. He wants you to come to him, and so that all of us then need to sort out all kind of things in our lives from that. So the non-Christian, I'm likely, personally, to reach the decision of, actually, this is going to help us build relationship in which I can introduce you to Jesus, so I will. I probably think it's less of a disputable matter, actually, for Christians. I think this thing of we're called to live out our biological sex, but again, there's the patience thing. So I might be prepared to use gender-neutral pronouns for a time for a Christian while they're working through that journey, actually, of what does it mean for me? How do I live it out? The one extra caveat to I'd say is I personally wouldn't, for a teenager, 
um, because there is now increasing evidence that even social transition, so names and pronoun changes for young people, makes it less likely that they will naturally resolve to become comfortable with their body and more likely their gender distress will continue. And I think as a matter of safeguarding and us as adults doing what is best for young people, actually not using chosen pronouns is the best way for us to do that. And so for parents particularly, I think that's an important line to hold for the well-being of children and for the rest of us to follow the lead of parents or to use gender-neutral pronouns uh, where necessary. It's very complex. Really good, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could touch on what you shared last night about um, the NHS's guidance now around mm. um, transgender and, and people wanting to transition, because I think that was something that a lot of us weren't aware of, and I think it's probably yeah, quite helpful sure. to share. Yeah, so this is specifically about yeah trans teenagers. So there's currently an official um, NHS review into the under-18s gender identity service, and called the CAS review, Hillary CAS, the paediatrician, um, <clears throat> which is halfway through. They've released an interim report, and on the basis, even of the interim report, let alone the full report, they are closing the existing gender identity service and opening some new ones. And basically the proposals for how they're now going to do things, which actually are proposals not yet confirmed, but they're likely to go with them, are basically a reversal of the previous approach. So the previous approach was a young person who comes with a male body, say, feels like a girl, probably is trans, as they would put it, will probably fairly quickly be helped to have puberty blockers, say, hormones, might move on to surgery at a later date, and we will fairly quickly use the name they want and the pronouns they want. What these proposals basically have done is reversed that because of this evidence I've said of actually there's no evidence base for these kind of interventions and there is evidence it makes it less likely they will naturally grow out of it, basically. And so now the default approach going forward in NHS general identity service will not be to use names and pronouns the young person wants and only in the most extreme cases will hormones and puberty blockers and the like be given. So it's basically a shift from a we're pretty much going to affirm most people pretty quickly to a, our default now is not affirming this gender identity and actually recognising the vast majority of these people have other mental health things going on or autistic characteristics or wrestling with their sexuality or being in traumatic experiences. And actually the best way to help them is to help those kind of things which, of which gender questioning is quite likely a symptom, but they're the cause to work on those, not on the gender thing. And as that rolls out, that should roll into new school guidance, which will be really helpful for churches and youth groups as well. And kind of, it's a really good thing, it's a really good move in terms of safeguarding young people and does, I think, help give us some confidence in actually what the Bible says is going to be the best thing for people. It's good, it's important to be aware of. Just a couple more. Um, we've got one here that says, on a political level, isn't it possible that arguing the question of feeling like a man or feeling like a woman that you discussed earlier, it could lead us to harming trans people? And how can we express this opinion, this view, healthily? Mm, that's good, yeah, it's so difficult. And links to what I said in that last section about we need to be really careful. It's really easy to get caught up in the cultural debate side of this and forget the kind of real people siding it. And it is very hard to hold both together, together well. I mean, a couple of thoughts. I think one is just in how we do it. And you know, there are very different ways one can engage in cultural debates. Um, as in some just, you know, shout angrily and seem to express no, exhibit no real care for people and so even toning all sorts of things. It's also in the sense of how and why and when. I think we need people influencing policy makers. We need people um, in clinical kind of settings and such like speaking out on this. We need people talking to senior leadership teams in schools and stuff. Have you realised there are other views on this, that stuff? We don't need everyone to get on their soapbox on Twitter. So partly it's also the wisdom of when we should speak and when we shouldn't speak. 
Um, and I think it's trying to pair that thing of both as Christians speaking out on the cultural level, we're also engaging well with individual people. And particularly thing of validating experience. So what we're not saying is, yeah, trans experience doesn't happen, this isn't real. What we're saying is your experience is very real. We believe you're feeling this and this is deeply impacting you, deeply painful for you. But we're not convinced the way that this is understood is the best for you or for other people. And so we're validating experience, that is very real, but we're questioning the understanding of that. And that will be hard for people to hear still sometimes but I think we hold on to truth trusting that this is the best thing for people and our hope is that they hear our heart in it we're not just saying you need to line up with 2000 year old book we're saying there is wisdom in this which should be life-giving and is good for society so it's incredibly yeah hard to navigate that rightly but some of those principles hopefully help us begin to get there brilliant got to have a couple more um we've got a question around baptism and uh, how this works out with uh, trans people, but also on sexuality issue as well. Have you got any mm. quick insights on that? Only that I think what's always so helpful to us is to think, we, we just get, we get kind of sexual and gender makes us view things differently. And so actually taking sexual and gender out of it, trying to think, if I imagine the parallel situation, what would I be thinking in terms of whether we're prepared to baptise someone, welcome to membership or whatever? Because we just do, as much as we don't want to, we say we don't, we do view sexuality and gender differently. And so actually thinking of parallel situations, because the most important thing is that we're treating all people fairly and equally that. And different churches may actually draw the lines in different places. Again, I think it's a disputable matter, and it's for a local eldership to decide actually how we as a church are going to practice this. But the key thing is, are we making sure we're treating trans people and gay people equally to how we treat other people who we might feel are living outside of God's plans for um, how things should be and for their flourishing. So that's really key. And I think it also does link into the thing of sanctification is a much longer, slower process than we often realise. So baptism isn't reserved for those who got their life sorted, but it is reserved for those who genuinely repented and believed in Jesus. And so there need to be evidences of repentance in both thinking and living, I think, before baptism takes place. Really good. And that links into our top voted question actually this morning is, and you've answered it already, but it says, is part of the church's problem in handling the issue of sexuality that has decided perhaps unconsciously that homosexuality is a worse sin than another? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was top voted though, so we better mention it. And there's one here, I think we might finish with this one, I have one more. Um, Can you unpack a little bit more um, church organisational stereotypes that are not helpful in this area? Mm-mm. It's always the moment where, in the heat of the moment, I can never think of the examples um, that it is. I think oh, part of it is gendered events. I'm not against gender-specific events, but if your gender-specific events are always incredibly on the end of the spectrum of gender stereotypes, just what message are you sending, especially to your young, young people, but people full stop who feel actually that doesn't interest me, it's just no affirming as middle me you should be in this, this particular kind of box. I think... Even things like kind of public representation, how your leadership and your public face of your church, are there actually diversity within femininity and masculinity within that? That's really important. If, you know, say a fairly effeminate boy who's grown up in the church in teenage years, if he only sees what come across as quite macho men, that's a problem actually. Actually, we, we are, we're in lots of ways, we're getting much better at thinking actually about how we deliberate about diversity, both to celebrate the diversity God has put into humanity, but also to help people feel welcome. And I think that's an area we could also think about it. And that probably feeds into things like, you know, for those of us who preach and teach particularly in stuff, it's very easy for stereotypes to come out through, as I mentioned, jokes or kind of illustrations and stuff. 
youth workers and kids workers, again, it'd be a huge area in terms of, yeah, kind of gendered um, events or activities, jokes young people making, and there might be actually at times we need to call people out, actually, for unhelpful jokes that are being made around stuff like that. So there's lots of these kind of little areas, and they're all kind of small things, but they cumulatively become create quite a problem. So it's just looking out for them. It's the kind of thing, I think, once you're aware of it, you begin to spot it a bit, and that's an opportunity for us to take some steps to respond to it. Brilliant. Really good. Why don't we give it up for Andrew one more time. Excellent today. Brilliant.